Evil is prevailing, and there's nothing we can do about it. We have to be strong in hope for the soon return of Christ. It seems that the church is losing in America right now. And you know, you can be easily discouraged if you look out. But what would happen if we changed our habit to look up? Good morning and welcome to God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the devil, and the world. And that is on the offensive. We want to positively resist these things, and we want to put forth the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness in this present existence. And sometimes when we look around us and we see what the world is up to, we see that it looks like the evil is prevailing. Excuse me. It says in that song, this is our father's world. Uh, Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And if we forget that part, then we are going to be terribly discouraged. We're not going to know where to go with things. And so I want to look at Psalm 2 as one way of looking up to the throne of God who rules all things. And Psalm 2, starting in the first verse, he says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from him, or you perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So there's a lot of different things happening in this psalm. And how does this apply to us as Christians? How does this apply to this present age in which we live? How does this apply to the church of Jesus Christ or to the kingdom of God? That's what we're going to be looking at as we go through here. First things first, context. Excuse me, I am just sick. I'm trying to get over that. So you may hear me clear my throat quite often through this, but I hope it won't be too much of a distraction. So context is the death, resurrection, triumph and rule of Christ's kingdom. That's all wrapped up in Psalm 2. And we can find the the context directly spoken to in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 28, where it says, Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So this whole uh, point in Acts chapter four was after Peter had healed a lame man at the temple. He preached a very convicting message, accusing the Jews of killing Christ and exhorted them to repentance. They were dragged in jail for preaching and teaching about Jesus And then the rulers of the Jews threatened them and then let them go. And they did that because they were afraid of the crowd of people because the crowd of people esteemed Peter and the disciples very highly and the religious leaders did not. So they threatened them and said, don't talk about Jesus anymore like this and then let them go. After that, the disciples left and they went back to the other disciples and then they prayed Psalm 2, which is the section of scripture I just read. 
and they applied Psalm 2 to the Gentile rulers that crucified Christ and to the Gentile believers. And it seems to be he also applied it to the people of Israel because they joined in with the Gentiles, it appears. <clears throat> Another place that Psalm 2 is referenced in the New Testament is Acts 13, 32. You know, starting 32 through 33. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So here we find the same thing that Jesus being raised up and being a fulfillment of the promise that was made to the fathers uh, was the interpretation of Psalm 2, uh, that part that says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So this psalm encourages us to hope in the victory of the kingdom of God over all nations because of the death, burial, resurrection, and triumph of Jesus Christ. That's what this psalm does. So let's break it down. <clears throat> so the first verse... He says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Excuse me, I got to take a drink. Uh, the heathen here means nations. Now, the word is goyim, and that's usually meaning non-Jewish people. Um, so that that's generally what that means. However, we can tell by the New Testament that it wasn't strictly just uh, non-Jewish, but that is the general usage. It says, why do the heathen rage? And oftentimes it's more like, why do the unbelievers rage? I think that's kind of the idea here. And raging here in Hebrew means to make a noise or a tumult. And it, this is the only place in the Bible that this specific Hebrew word is used. There is a Chaldean, uh, I don't know what you call that. It's the same word Same word in Chaldean. We find several places in the book of Daniel. In, in Hebrew, it's ragash. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. In Chaldean, it's rehash. It's the same word. And in the book of Dem Daniel, excuse me, this word means assembled together. Uh, and the people coming together tumultuously. So same kind of idea, gathering together <clears throat> with rage, with an agenda, with an overthrow, you know, this tumult they're, that they're raising. And then it says the heathen was that, the, the heathen are come together. And it says, and why do the people imagine a vain thing? And people means the same as heathen. Um, this, you're going to find this a couple of times in this Psalm and throughout the Psalms, uh, Hebrew poetry oftentimes uses two different words that means the same thing. And it's, it's called a Hebrew parallelism. They just try and stress the same point with, while using different words. So we don't have to find some deep spiritual meaning in here. It means people means the same thing. And why do the, the heathens, the people imagine um, a vain thing? So imagine is literally not just like making up a story, but meditating, planning, devising, forming a purpose. Why do these heathen get together so angrily devising some plan, some purpose, really thinking through all this? And we we know it's against the Lord and is, is anointed in, in the verse that we'll go through after this. But he said, why do they imagine a vain thing? A vain thing's empty. It's useless, right? God essentially says this is not going to succeed. Though all the nations are gathered together, this rage against God, it's not going to succeed. And here it's referring to the citizens of the nations. Why are they all assembled together, plotting and planning something in rage? And then, of course, in the second verse, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So then the rulers, they set themselves, they station themselves. This is our job. This is what we do. We're planting our feet in the ground. We're building from here. The rulers take counsel together. These are rulers of separate nations. Now they're talking with one another and they're gathering together with rage to plot a joint effort against God and against his anointed one, Jesus Christ, against his rule, remember, <clears throat> because now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father. 
All power and authority is given unto him in heaven and in earth. There is no power above him. This is still true today, by the way. He's still on the throne. He's still there. And the people of nations, as well as their rulers, assemble and plot together to snuff God out. That's what they're trying to do. And he says, why do the people imagine a vain thing? This is useless, apparently. That's what God says. Here's what the people of the nations would say in verse three. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And this is the cry of all those that hate God. Bands and cords symbolize God's law and rule. So they're like saying, we don't want his rule over us. Let's kill God. Let's erase him from society. And we find communism, fascism, humanism, leftism. These are all their objectives, trying to snuff God out of society. But none of these things have ever succeeded in fully snuffing out God and his influence in the hearts of men. It's impossible. Remember, God said, why do they imagine a vain thing, a foolish, empty, useless thing? Why do they do that? Verse four, he that sitteth in the heavens, that is God, the Lord, uh, who that setteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. So God is in the heaven of heavens, untouched by any ruler or rulers. Who could ever even try to fight against him? He's unreachable. You can't even get to his throne. You can't overthrow him. So it's comical to God to think of the creatures he created trying to war against him as if they might win. And remember, Lucifer was an angel who died and, and he tried, excuse me, he didn't die. He tried that and it didn't really go well with him. He tried to rebel against God and he was kicked out of heaven and he has a sure end according to the scripture. It says that God will laugh and the Lord will have them in derision. What does derision mean? It, the Hebrew word it means to mock as if you were imitating someone of a foreign language. So like, we will gather together and we are going to overtake the throne of God. You know, it's like, it's as if God is taking on this persona of all the different nations, mocking them as if like, this isn't going to work, guys. Um, I find that kind of humorous. God has a sense of humor at the same time. Verse five, then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. So first he's mocking them like, you guys, this is useless and foolish. But now after he's done mocking them in their assembled effort to overthrow him, he speaks to them in his wrath. He's terribly angry towards these people who are trying to usurp his throne. And it says he will vex them in his sore displeasure. He disturbs and terrifies them because of his great power and because of his rule and because of the judgment that he oftentimes sends through his providences where nations are crumbled to the ground. People that are in rulership positions are taken from their rulerships. They die suddenly. All sorts of things can happen. And then they are terror in terror of this God. Or they even get more angry and it's still foolish. Verse 6. Yet, in spite of all this, have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So in spite of all the plannings of the nations, God has chosen and set one upon the throne in the holy hill Zion. And this is not necessarily just talking about a literal Zion, but the heavenly Jerusalem where God is presently now seated. Christ's rule is both now and it will be in the eternal state. He's warring against the nations and rulers now. And there will be the final triumph in that eternal state. In verse seven, he says, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. We reference that uh, where Acts chapter 13, Paul says that. This is a prophetic utterance of Christ. He is the only begotten son of God and he shall rule. And then God talking to Christ in verse eight says, ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Adam Clark says this, Having died as an atoning sacrifice and risen again from the dead, he was now to make intercession for mankind and in virtue and on account of what he had done and suffered, he was at his request to have the nations for his inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. He was to become supreme Lord 
in the mediatorial kingdom, in consequence of which he sent his apostles throughout the habitable globe to preach the gospel to every man. That's how he's taking dominion. Barnes, he says, the world then is to be regarded as given by covenant to the son of God. And in due time, he will set up his dominion over the earth and rule over mankind. Daniel Whedon, a Methodist commentary, uh, commentator of yesteryear, not the Methodism of today, the total boundary of the world. The kingdom of Christ embraces the whole world, all worlds, all things visible and invisible, referring to Colossians. The church is only that part of his kingdom on earth, which has publicly submitted to his authority and has obtained pardon and reconciliation through him. The rest are under his dominion, though in a state of revolt. So this is Christ's kingdom. Verse nine, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the triumph of the almighty Christ is in spite of the proud boasting of the nations and the rulers. And this is a strong and sure scepter of rule, the dominion of Christ, just as strong plus infinitely more as the opposition was and is against the rule of God. So strong and sure would Christ gain the inheritance of the world and has the power to keep his rightful dominion over it. And he will dash them like a potter's vessel. In other words, how easy it is for God to smash the strength of the enemy into shards, though they boast that they're going to win against God. Verse 10, be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. <clears throat> so in light of the power of Christ and his sure victory, he tells kings, princes, judges, you be wise. Gaze and muse upon his kingly power. Let your heart be filled with dread terror. Let God teach you who is ruler of all. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So serve means submission and the Lord is the self-existent eternal one. Serve him with fear. Be exuberant with joy while you tremble at his sure victory in the strength of his power and of his dominion. So he's telling these people, be careful what you're doing. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So kiss is so different from the rage and tumult of verse one. Kissing the hand of the king was a token of homage and respect. So he's saying, you embrace Christ as Savior and Lord of all, lest he be angry and his judgment and his wrath toward the rebels come upon you and you perish from the way. You lose the way of salvation. You fall off the proper path. The wrath of God being kindled a little results in these terrors and you would want to escape. And that's totally different outcome to those that are submissive and obedient to him because those people we're told are blessed. So dear listener, don't be disheartened when you look at all the crazy stuff that's going on around you. God is in control. God will have the victory. God already has the victory. Look up instead of out. And until next time, join the resistance. God's resistance. Your next step is to call 570-362-7782. I'd love to get together with you, uh, talk with you on the phone, or if you're local, call, uh, sit down, have a coffee with you, help you on your journey to walk with God, and stay tuned for a meeting place that may be opening up in downtown Wilkes-Barre in the near future.